0: This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.
1: Okay, good evening, everyone, and welcome uh, to RAND's headquarters campus. I'm Michael Rich. I I don't think I know everybody here. I'm president and CEO of the RAND Corporation. This is an event that is uh, honoring Al Williams, and Al was a distinguished researcher and research leader at RAND. Uh, He embodied and demonstrated uh, the objectivity, the rigor, the dedication to the public good that are uh, central values here at RAND, and the Albert P. Williams Memorial Lecture Series was established in 2000 through the generosity of Al's friends and his colleagues to commemorate his legacy. And we're honored that Al's son, Albert, is uh, here with us tonight again, as he has been in the past. And um, Albert, we wanted to salute you uh, as well, to remember your father. Um, now, Al Williams came to Rand in 1968, and he worked here for 32 years until he passed away in 2000. And he came to work at Rand at the very beginning to work on international economic policy, uh, mainline program of research here. But in the early 1970s, uh, he led a, a series of innovative studies on medical school economics. And as a result, he quickly established himself as one of the leaders in what at that time was RAND's health sciences program, and it was headed by Tom Rockwell, who's here. Al ended up succeeding Tom in that job, and he served as the head of the RAND Health program. Now it's known as RAND Health. Uh, for fourteen years, and in every uh, organization, um, uh, there are a few people who are more than just top performers. Uh, they possess and they demonstrate uh, the human qualities that make them especially well respected and especially well admired and in al 's case loved uh, by his peers throughout the organization. Al was truly one of those uh, those people here at rand and it 's hard for me to explain uh, how important he was to the institution. Uh, and to the people uh, he worked with, uh, and how much he is missed by those of us who know him. Uh, There's a eulogy in your program, and that was my best effort uh, nearly 16 years ago uh, to describe those things. Under Al's leadership, Rand took on one of the largest, most innovative social science experiments uh, ever performed in the United States, uh, I think it remains as the only long-term experimental study of health cost-sharing and and its effects on the use and quality of care, and most important, on health. And we've been marking today and into tomorrow the 40th anniversary of the RAND health insurance experiment, so I think it's fitting that this year the Williams Laureate uh, will um, is someone who worked closely with with Al. Uh, Close friends with Al and also played a key role in that seminal research Uh, Joe Newhouse spent 20 years of his first 20 years of his career here at RAND and He it's where he designed and directed the RAND health insurance experiment And this is actually the second time that Al is the or that Joe is the Al Williams laureate He also delivered the first Al Williams lecture in 2002 He's currently the John D. MacArthur Professor of Health Policy and Management. He's director of the Division of Health Policy Research and Education, at least for a while, uh, at Harvard University. And um, also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a member of the National Academy of Medicine, a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, among many other affiliations and memberships. Received numerous prestigious awards, author of books, uh, he's also the former vice chair of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, and tonight he's going to tell us about the role of private plans in Medicare. So please join me in welcoming to the podium, <laughs> Joe Newhouse.
2: Well, thanks very much, Michael, for that uh, generous introduction, and it's a real pleasure to be back at RAND. Uh, when Jeffrey Wasserman called me to ask me to do this, I told him, gee, Jeffrey, I, didn't you know I'd already done this? <laughs> uh, and he said no, he would like me to do it again, so it's even bigger honor to do it again. And of course, uh, Ann and Al were very close personal friends of Meg's and mine. Uh, I remember many happy occasions at their house in Mammoth Lakes, Great to see Albert and Gay Rose sitting here in the front row, um, and uh, I still have, still cherish those memories. Um, I'm going to talk to you tonight about some uh, research I've been doing over the past several years, uh, the subject which you see in the title slide. Um, my funding agency requires that I um, report their support <laughs> and... Uh, I'm happy to do, and I should say I'm a, I am a director of Aetna, which sells Medicare Advantage plans, but it hedges itself by also selling supplements to traditional Medicare. Um, so for those of you that don't know uh, about Medicare, <clears throat> but I see several of you in the audience who may be part of Medicare, uh, <laughs> but for the others... Um, when you go on the CM, uh, medicare.gov website, this is the first thing you will see. Uh, you have to decide if you want to be in what I'll call traditional Medicare, what the government calls original Medicare, or you want to be in a Medicare Advantage plan. And then everything branches uh, after that. So I, this, this is a now a substantial program. Uh, Something like Oaks from Little Acorns Grow, uh, it's, although Medicare itself goes back to 1966, traditional Medicare. This program started uh, as an official program of Medicare uh, t- almost two decades later. And as you see, it's now, although it's had a bit of a roller coaster, it's been steadily growing for the uh, past decade. So I think it's also fair to say that for uh, many years, uh, policy analysts kind of thought Medicare Advantage had a bit of a bad odor. Um, First of all, uh, they thought it cost the government money because they thought uh, the government paid more for people in Medicare Advantage than the government would have paid for them if they'd have been in original Medicare. And at one point in the late 1990s, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that indeed that was true, the government paid 8% more for these beneficiaries uh, than they would have paid if the beneficiaries had all been in traditional Medicare. And you can ask how that happened, and I'll tell you a little about that, but one can ask, well, all right, if the government was paying more, uh, what happened to the people that were in Medicare Advantage? Did they get anything for this? And there really wasn't any evidence on that point, I would say. But the general assumption was, with a few exceptions, like the people in Kaiser, um, the people enrolled in Medicare Advantage were using the same doctors and the same hospitals that the people in original Medicare were. So and they presumption was they treated them the same way. And so why should we be paying more for essentially the same thing? Or maybe it was worse uh, if these plans said, no, you don't get that service. So it, I'll frame this as uh, the first bullet being a question of what economists would call selection. Good risks were going into uh, Medicare Advantage. wasn't called Medicare Advantage in those days, but we can skip by that point. And um, quality was uh, really not better, and it might be worse. So, how did it, the? Why was the government paying more? Well, uh, this requires telling you how the government uh, reimbursed Medicare Advantage plans, and uh, in those days, it paid them uh, a percentage of what it paid for. Uh, traditional Medicare in a county. So it would, we would tote up what everybody in traditional Medicare cost in a county. We would um, divide that by the number of people in the county. And initially, we paid the government paid 95% of that. With the idea was, well, if HMO saved money, the government ought to get a piece of the action. And uh, 5% seemed like a piece of the action. So that's what it was. Now, of course... This presumed that the people enrolling were on average the average Medicare beneficiary, and if they were cost less in Medicare than the average Medicare beneficiary, this math was going to cost the government money. So, and from a plan's point of view, uh, it, as the slide says, um, they got people that didn't cost much, they could make money. So here's some evidence that... <coughs> This seemed to be happening. Um, The red bar on the left is uh, just normalized to one, and it's people that were continuously in traditional Medicare. And the green bar on the right are people that at some point in the early 90s decided to join uh, Medicare Advantage. And what this... Slide shows is what the people who decided to join spent uh, during their last six months in traditional Medicare. So, what you see is they spent 38% less than they joined Medicare Advantage. Okay, now here's a similar data, but these are the people that switched back to traditional Medicare. In other words, they disenrolled from Medicare Advantage. And this is in the six months after they went back to traditional Medicare. They spent 42% more than people that they were matched with who had just steadily been in traditional Medicare. Um, And one final piece of evidence that these people really were not the average risk, uh, on average, they had 15% lower mortality now, then it regressed back toward the mean as the longer they stayed in Medicare Advantage. But I don't think anybody really thought a Medicare Advantage plan could lower mortality 15%. So <laughs> the, the story was, you know, these were the better risks. Okay, so uh, there was a reform of this system in the mid-2000s. And the uh, slide has the jargon risk adjustment. But the basic idea was there would be a redistribution of money among Medicare Advantage plans, and people the plans that had sicker people would get money from plans that had healthier people. So if if you just enrolled people that had no chronic disease, you would basically pay plans that had people with chronic disease. And as I'll get to later, how much more... Medicare paid for people with chronic disease depended on what the cost was in traditional Medicare. So if you had a person with (coughs) diabetes, you looked at the cost in traditional Medicare, and you had a person (coughs) with pneumonia, you looked at how much they cost in traditional Medicare, and then let's say the person with diabetes cost twice as much, the plan got twice as much for those people. So now the game of just enrolling healthy people was over, Um, If you enrolled healthy people, you were going to pay into this fund. You were going to pay other Medicare Advantage plans. And there was one other important reform, which was that prior to the uh, mid-2000s, Medicare Advantage enrollees could uh, leave Medicare Advantage at any month. Though, if I was told, for example... I had uh prostate cancer and I was in Medicare Advantage and <clears throat> my oncologist wasn't that I wanted to see, wasn't in the Medicare Advantage Plan Network. I could say Sayonara, I'm back in original Medicare the first of the next month. That got changed so that it's like plans that operate in commercial insurance. You basically sign up for a year. Medicare wasn't quite that Limiting, but uh, you couldn't leave at the end of every month. So that also was an effort to try to reduce the <laughs> selection uh, of uh, risks in uh, Medicare Advantage. <clears throat> so, in short, from a plan's point of view, if you to make money now, you had to basically treat a given diagnosis uh, efficiently, and it. Starting in 2012, Medicare also started putting significant money on the line for measures of quality. So, <clears throat> if you could uh, score well on your quality measures, you could, and your plan, you got significant money. Uh, I'll come back to how well this worked. Well, this slide has s- some information that I want to come back to, but it, the first point I want to make on this slide is what it means, what th- what these numbers mean. And then uh, the point I'll want to make is that they bear on uh, selection. So what I've done, it turns out Medicare just doesn't, I made it sound before, as if they paid more for diabetics, which they do, than people without diabetes uh, or anything else. But they distinguish 14 kinds of diabetes. There's plain old diabetes without complications. Uh, Then there's diabetes with Complication X, maybe chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, maybe vas some other vascular disease, whatever. <clears throat> what this slide does um, <clears throat> is look at actual margins from one plan, although we've looked at a second plan <clears throat> that has similar margins by diagnosis. In other words, it's where it shows that, <clears throat> and these aren't the actual margins. We had to agree to keep those confidential, but they. They are the actual margins plus a constant I've added to each bar. Uh, some of the margins are negative, so adding a positive constant makes prevents the red lines from going below the axis and obliterating the <laughs> letters below it. <coughs> but the point I want to make with this is that it was actually much more profitable to be treating diabetics or... Uh, Medicare beneficiaries with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or uh, chronic heart failure than it was cancer or unstable angina. And so this, what this bears on is incentives for plans to select. So if you're running a plan, you like people now with diabetes, um, you're not so happy about people with cancer. Um, now, um, turns out those diseases on the left, where the plans were making the most money, uh, all are typically managed by primary care physicians, <clears throat> and they all are chronic diseases that can be medically managed. In other words, you can keep people out of the hospital. Um, <clears throat> cancer is typically managed by oncologists, unstable angina and other Acute ischemic heart disease (laughs) is the only uh, data point we have on an acute disease, but basic heart attacks are here. (laughs) If you have a heart attack, the ambulance shows up, drives you off to the hospital. The hospital does what it does at the first day or two of your disease. (laughs) There's not much the plan can do about that. The plan can intervene a little bit, maybe with cardiac rehab, but... uh, there's very little medical management there, so this pattern kind of fits a notion that diseases that are t- tend to be managed by primary care physicians where medical management is effective plans do reasonably well, and <coughs> conversely well, what what to our surprise uh, <coughs> since most of these plans are for profit plans uh, We didn't find any selection. The distribution of people across those diseases was identical to the distribution in traditional Medicare. Um, So um, this may be starting to happen, although this is a a news item from uh, last November in the uh, exchanges. Uh, There's a LEAP diabetes plan. So, which has some tailoring for diabetics. It's obviously meant to appeal to diabetics. Now, the old saw among health policy analysts was we would know when risk adjustment was good enough when plans started trying to advertise for sick people. Uh, <laughs> and this was usually said with uh, this-won't-happen-in-my-lifetime tone of voice. Uh, well, we're starting to maybe see it. Um, okay, so... Going back to how plans could make money now, well, they couldn't make money just by getting healthy people. They actually had to get diabetics or cancer patients that were relatively cheap relative to the average. you You can think about how a plan might set up its network or its formulary of drugs so that it would appeal to diabetics but not appeal to cancer patients. A little harder to think about how you would set that up in a way that it appeals to cheap diabetics. It doesn't appeal to expensive diabetics. Um, we've looked at that, um, and it uh, it doesn't appear to be in the data to speak of. Now, what I want to show you next are uh, that the mix of health risks in Medicare Advantage plans has really changed. So uh, these are data that uh, I showed you, bef- the red bars I showed you before, although this was the, this 0.85, uh, well, I, this laser point, over there on the far left, that was the 15% reduction in mortality from 1998. The green bars are from 2008. And as you see, uh, the mortality across all years is 0.93. But if you remember my roller coaster slide of enrollment, enrollment is increasing a lot. And if you go over there to the far right... Um, By the time these people have stayed in five years, and most people do stay in, by the way, uh, mortality uh, is really not distinguishable in the plans, whereas it was certainly distinguishable a decade before that. And one other slide to show you that the mix of risks change. These are data from 2001 to 2007 when those reforms happened. And the blue dots over there on the left are measures of utilization so what you see is that utilization is really increasing through that. Now, the plans really weren't changing how they managed care very much. If anything, they were doing a better job. But what you see is utilization really increased over that six-year period. And then over on the right, the percentage in fair who, of people who rated themselves in fair or poor health also went up. So the point is that uh, the mix of people who enrolled in this program was changing. Uh, so my conclusion is that those reforms, the diagnosis-based risk adjustment that paid you more if you uh, enrolled uh, sick people, and the lock-in extension, that largely uh, succeeded. The government more or less got it right, right? Um, Now, what about quality of care? So you remember my first bullet was the the kind of the first accusation against this program was it cost the government money. That no longer (coughs) is so clear. And what about quality of care? Well, all of the people here from the RAND Health Program (coughs) will know that quality of care in this country could be improved and probably in every other country. Um, And... Also, traditional Medicare, which was an attraction for many people, basically never intervened in care. It was what I'll call a passive reimburser of claims. Uh, That has now started to change also, but um, that's relatively recent. So Medicare Advantage plans can do a lot that traditional Medicare did not do. Uh, I won't read the slide, but you can read it. Uh, And I'm sure some, several of you are familiar with these things from your old, own health insurance. Um, now, there was a lot of uh, preventable illness or treatment in traditional Medicare. The middle red bar there says that among high-cost patients, 41% of their emergency department use uh, was preventable. These aren't my data, and basically the same for uh, non-high-cost patients. Um, there were substantial numbers of preventable hospital admissions. Uh, so th- these now are data that <coughs> from my group, uh, Medicare Advantage plans twenty five percent less emergency department use. Uh, don't worry about the dotted lines; they're new plans versus old plans. It's pretty much the same story, and um, also less uh, inpatient use. That's the Red line, the red line becomes the dotted line because they're all on top of each other. Susan Denser will no doubt recognize the source of these slides. (coughs) Um, We looked at, well, how does this reduction take place? Um, This is uh, fracture of the femur versus knee replacement. The action from the plans is on knee replacement, which is a discretionary procedure. Interestingly, the rate of... uh, a fracture of the femur is actually a bit higher in Medicare Advantage plans, suggesting they actually may have a somewhat sicker population. But I won't don't want to go there too much. These are uh, preventive services, um, <clears throat> so you can read them. The red bars are Medicare Advantage; the blue bars are traditional Medicare that are matched. Uh, and what you see is the red bars are almost universally above the blue bars, more preventive services in. Medicare Advantage um, and again, more preventive services there the only thing that fa- seems to favor traditional Medicare and it's very slight is over there on the far right ratings of specialists, which may just be because Medicare Advantage is more choosy about giving you access to specialists. end of life care this is actually what I found I was I'm not surprised by a lot, but I was surprised by this. Uh, If you look down there at the bottom, the red line that's at the very bottom, these are people that are in the two programs who are in the last six months of life. Okay, So the emergency room use among that group is almost half in Medicare Advantage. And the hospitalization rate, which is the other red underlined bar, as you see, is also notably less. Um, In other words, end-of-life care is looking what I would call, better uh, in um, Medicare Advantage. There's a slide on disparities, and then I'll stop torturing you with data slides. Uh, <coughs> so the, uh, <coughs> these are comparing matched groups, so <coughs> and the disparities are actually reversed. The usual disparities of whites doing better uh, are reversed in Medicare Advantage. So what you see, for example, over there on the far left... Um, there is it's just mammography, so it may not hold for other procedures, but more higher rate of mammography among uh, blacks in Medicare Advantage than among matched whites. And then if you uh, look over on the other side, you get the usual disparities in traditional Medicare, less, less among blacks, less among Hispanics, et cetera. Um, okay, I, I showed you this slide before, <clears throat> Um, what I want to do now, I talked about selection before, but now coming back in the quality context. I made the point early on, but I'll make it again, that the amount more a Medicare Advantage plan gets for someone with diabetes is based on what traditional Medicare spent for diabetes, say, relative to cancer, et cetera. So what this slide is... So that's the – and this is the margin. So it's the – what the Medicare plan – the Advantage plan gets based on what traditional Medicare spent relative to what the Medicare Advantage plan spent. That's the margin. And what you see is the margins are, as I said before, they're considerably greater on those diseases on the left. What that says is Medicare Advantage is actually treating these – the – groups of conditions, particularly on the left there, at lower cost. Um, and I said I fuzzed it up by adding a, the same constant to all of those. <coughs> some of them are negative, some of the margins, but of course most of them are positive or the plans would pull out. Um, okay, what about spending? I oh, This is actually my last data slide. So spending is... If I look at government spending, is still greater in Medicare Advantage, but I want you to look at the middle column there, the 94% column. That's we, We've now switched from the government uh, setting a price to the plans and say take it or leave it uh, to the plans bidding. So the old system lives on in the form of a so-called benchmark that the plans bid against, So, but the... 100% in those columns is what traditional Medicare would have spent. So the plans are actually bidding, which is what they get, uh, 94% of traditional Medicare. Uh, in other words, they're saying they can deliver the same services at 6% less, and if you're an HMO plan, which most of them are, you can deliver at 10% less cost. So why, why are those over there on the right? Is the government paying more? Well, this is a longer story that we can probably get to in the q a if you want to but basically the government tax on money for the plans but then turns around says the plans we have to give this money back to the beneficiaries you can give it back in the form of lower premiums you can give it back in the form of lower co-payments you can give it back in the form of additional services like dental but you give it back to the beneficiaries you don't get to keep it uh That's 102%. So what we have here is the plan. say we'll deliver the bundle of services that traditional Medicare does at 94%. And then there's this bonus to the beneficiary of 8%. Trying to take benefits off the table is extremely difficult uh, in uh, all of government programs. And certainly this one is no exception. So uh, my takeaways, and then we'll go to Q&A. Um, selection is clearly down in this program. Uh, it's probably pretty minimal now. Uh, we don't exactly know, but I would guess if, if it's going on at all, it's probably under 1%. Um, there, the quality data I showed you have to be suggestive. Those are, uh, those are the measures we have. Uh, there's lots of Quality comparisons we can 't make, but the ones we have tend to favor uh, Medicare advantage and as far as cost, the Medicare Advantage is actually treating people uh, f- f- the same with the same in effect benefit plan at a lower cost they 're actually paid more, as I said, and, but th- that goes to the beneficiaries. so with that, let me stop and take your questions and again say what a uh, honor it is to uh, both give the Al Williams lecture and to see all old friends in the audience. Joe, great
3: lecture. Thank you so much. So maybe one question and a sub-question. Um, one, one answerable and one possibly not, but I want to ask it anyway. So the first question is, as you know, the ACA knocked back some of those extra payments to the M.A. plans, uh, and there was a lot of screaming and moaning about how this was going to injure beneficiaries, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't appear any of that happened, and the plans, as you point out, are still making a lot of money. Um,
2: Some of them are making more money than others. Some
3: more than others. So what do we think was the effect of knocking back that those extra payments? And it sounds like we we could actually knock back more and without a lot of injury to the plans or to beneficiaries. The sub-question is, to what degree do we think the higher performance of the M.A. plans is due to the fact that we measured them through HEDIS, through uh, the star ratings now that the plans all have to compete for? We're not doing that with traditional Medicare, but the plans have had something to aim at to improve quality.
2: Uh, Could we cut back the payments further? Um, I think the real answer is uh, I don't know. I mean, benefits have come off the table for the beneficiaries. They're having to pay more than they did uh, in the pre-ACA days, and we've been going through a transition, as you know, so the full effect of the ACA actually doesn't happen until next uh, year, although most of it's now in place. Um, I uh, I simply uh, don't know, uh, you know, at what point – Medicare Advantage becomes less uh, attractive to beneficiaries. I mean, it's not may not well, may well not be a linear response. In other words, uh, and remind me of your sub question. Measuring. Oh, measuring. Yes, I think that's actually uh, quite important. Plans, all the plans, know how they're paid, and they are now paid, as Susan mentioned, for what she called the star ratings, are the quality measures that I alluded to. Um, so they do aim at that. One of the things I didn't say because it sounded a little self-serving, but it is, in fact, really hard to compare the quality of care in these programs because you have the data you have. You either have it for one program or the other program, but not for both um, so that's one reason why the quality measures are limited, but I do think that, you know, the, me- what is measured is what our plans will direct their resources to, uh, to improve. And we simply, I would say we just don't know about the stuff that isn't measured.
4: We have a question back here.
3: Joe, thanks. It's a uh, Cheryl Danberg from RAND. um, I had a question about trying to track this um, longitudinally uh, because some of the work that I've done recently um, interviewing physician organizations um, about how they're responding to incentives, both on the commercial side and Medicare Advantage, um, shows uh, (coughs) great pressure within these organizations for upcoding risk. Um, and most of them described uh, significant efforts to work with their providers to uh, aggressively code, get their phys- uh, patients in for their annual senior visit to upcode. So I'd be curious what your thoughts are about the role of upcoding risk.
2: Well, there's clearly been upcoding that but the ACA put in coding adjustments. Uh, actually, one of the early projects I did, at RAND uh, was when um, CMS, or the HICFA in those days, put in um, the the DRG system to pay hospitals. And I don't know if Dan Rollis is here. I thought I saw him. But it lo and behold, if you uh, got paid more for saying you treated a sicker person, there turned out to be a lot more sicker people out there. Uh, And... Consulting firms would go around selling software and training programs to hospitals to get their uh, medical records, people to uh, code more. And um, the hospitals, of course, said, well, gee, you know, some of this is true because uh, the less sick people, like people getting cataract operations are no longer hospitalized. And so we've got a sicker people in the hospital. Um, And we've, found about half of it was true, and half of it was coding. Um, and there's, it's clear that some of that went on, much of that went on in Medicare Advantage. That, I don't think, bears on anything here, because in principle, you can take that back. There's only so much you can upcode before you get to fraud. And there's... You, you can go to jail for fraud. So... Um, I'm not. I'm not persuaded there is a lot of fraud. I am persuaded there's substantial, has been substantial upcoding, but the rates have been adjusted for. uh, I think a good bit of it, but it's really hard to know how much is left.
5: Hi, I'm uh, Chuck Phelps. I think I know you. (laughs) Um, you, Could you go back to your first slide, the enrollment roller coaster? Sure. Pop that up. Uh, While that's uh, uh, magically appearing here, my memory of this, which I wanted to ask you to comment on, is that uh, that some of the dips in that roller coaster were because plans were withdrawing as the payment uh, mechanisms were changed and then coming back in when they – came back in again. Yes, your memory is good. Okay, so I just thought it would be worth commenting on that now that we know about the risk adjustment and the payment mechanisms, the drop from 6.3 down to 4.7, and then essentially a steady state climb thereafter. Uh, I thought it would be fun to hear you talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, (laughs) Gail Walensky (laughs) and I lived through this in our days at BPRC, ProPAC, and MedPAC. So the Congress in 1997 enacted the Balanced Budget Act, which... I realize it's kind of ancient history for most people here. But um, their uh, uh, idea was that they, there, were, there were big differences by geography in the Medicare program, as all the health policy people know. And so places like Miami, there was a lot more spent than places like uh, Minneapolis or Portland or rural areas. And the members of Congress from the rural areas (coughs) looked at the people in Miami, these benefits, because Medicare paid that and because I would say that you had to give it back and plans competed, the plans in places like Miami were offering drug benefits. This is pre Part D in Medicare. And the members of Congress looked at Miami and said, you know, my, from Minneapolis, my, constituents aren't getting those benefits. And this is supposed to be a national program with uniform taxes. And, um, you know, uh, now their answer wasn't a very good answer from the point of view of economists, but th- never mind that. Their answer was, we're going we're gonna to pay p- plans in these low-rate areas more. So they put in a floor. So you, if you were in these low-rate areas, you got... The maximum of either this floor or a uh what traditional Medicare spent, usually the floor that was the point well um, the plans for the at least initially didn't show up very much in the in the low rate areas, but uh this was the balanced budget act so and if you put in a floor, the government was going to spend more money, so that seemed to have a certain tension that the Congress decided it would resolve by taking money out of the high-rate areas. So it limited increases in the high-rate areas to 2% a year, at least in 1998 or so when this roller coaster started down, and plans uh, withdrew. Not all plans, but some plans withdrew, and uh, other plans became less generous, Uh, and enrollment started to dip, which, you know, was one reason I was wishy-washy in answering Susan. Um, And then the uh, Congress decided it didn't like this dip, and it started pumping dollars back into Medicare Advantage, and then you see the results on the slide. So uh, this roller coaster is, as Chuck Phelps said, very much, uh, a creature of uh, policy initiatives.
3: We have your next question back here.
2: Hi, Joe. I have a question for you. Um, you we can know identify yourself. We are two people in older. the room that don't Wait know you. We're,
4: not, we're not getting only older, but we are getting But one-third of the elderly fall into the category of vulnerable elders. And one of the keynote studies that Rand did was ACOV, funded by the board, that basically identified that the quality of care across a comprehensive set of measures for this group was about 30%, much lower than <coughs> Beth McGlynn's number, and you have the traditional diseases up there. You do not have any geriatric conditions and any measures of quality. What I, Having worked with CMS and been involved in them so much, why can't we get them to be honest about producing a uh, uh, quality of care, we have the methodology, it's cheap, it's inexpensive. Why can't we get a comparison for the average Medicare person who's vulnerable to ask the question whether for geriatric conditions, do managed care do better or worse than fee-for-service? And showing mammography rates, which are probably not even indicated as we get older, uh, it's not exactly my measure of quality. Um, and so, I, uh, so I'm just wondering if... Uh, you can deal with this. All of us, or many of us, still have parents alive that fall into that group, and um, and you have no, and why can't we convince the government that they have to, if they have two programs, provide the information to make this comparison?
2: Uh, well, that would be very nice for uh, us in the analytical community, but uh, I don't, have a good answer to that question, except to say that the measures I showed you are the measures that one can actually compute that compare these two programs, and they're limited precisely because, as Bob said, uh, it's actually very hard to find ways to do that. Um, So maybe things will improve. I can always be optimistic. Uh, I know uh, Gail Walensky, who ran CMS, may want to comment on it.
0: I mean, I think the best thing to do to try to be responsive to Bob is to say, if there were specific metrics that you wanted CMS to be able to produce uh, using traditional Medicare and, and Medicare Advantage, having a file be produced, you ought, it ought to be here. No, is CMS,
2: what... CMS recently hasn't actually had the data. I mean, they're starting to get it on Medicare Advantage. They, they didn't have – I'm sorry, they had the clinical data right, they had the on, clinical on Medicare data. Advantage, not on traditional Medicare. And they had the measures they had on – they didn't have the encounter data to analyze little, little like the claims on – but they have them now. They just haven't released them.
0: So I think – I mean, I think right now the best thing to do is to say and to have as a broader group as possible, these are – the specific fields that would help try to address the issue that has been raised uh, for the last 20, 25 years now in terms of comparing both quality and, and cost, but in, in many ways uh, what Bob has referenced is really whether the relevant quality measures uh, are the ones that we're using in terms of Medicare Advantage versus traditional Medicare. Now, of course, the complaint that he has raised... Uh, is as much what we do in terms of quality metrics and focusing too often on process and not an actual outcome that's improving but slowly and whether the process measures for the elderly are the relevant process measures, uh, in particular, say, uh, mammography rates or any other screening rate. But, I, th- I mean, I think the best thing, if you wanted to have uh, an addition is to say is to have a group say these very specific fields are the one that would make us better able to judge the question that com- uh, that comes up. So yeah. I don't know if it would matter, but I think that's the best way to proceed. Okay, we have time for about one or two more questions,
3: and we've got one right here.
0: Uh, from time to
5: time, we read on the lay press that. Uh, some government officials believe that payers uh, should reimburse uh, health care uh, delivery based more on quality and patient outcomes rather than on cost. My question is, is this a doable, actionable plan? Is it something that's realistic? And do we have uh, valid, uh, scientifically valid measurements to to understand the 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 patient outcomes better than we do now.
2: I think the first thing to say is it's improving. I don't want to give an absolute characterization, uh, and the uh, second thing to say is I think it, it's unrealistic to do this at the individual physician level. Uh, we can talk about it at groups as groups of physicians uh, or delivery systems. Um, but I, th- I'm, I would be very chary about trying to find a, a rating of your primary care physician that was really very realistic or didn't give that person incentives to potentially not, not want some of his uh, or her patient mix because they were contributing to poor ratings.
3: And now our final question
5: John Ware. Joe, um, I believe it was in 1998, your first curve, the the first peak before the decline and then the increase. If I recall correctly, that was when the Medicare Health Outcomes Survey was launched, which was a random sample drawn by the government of 1,000 Medicare Advantage beneficiaries for every plan. I believe the first two-year cohort was about 188 or 200 plans, and a new cohort was started every single year. And before we were asked to stop doing this analysis, we looked at the first four cohorts, and there were uh, uh, using a risk-adjusted Medicare Advantage national average uh, and looking at the plans that performed two sigma worse or better than that uh, the, there was, uh, there clearly were better performing plans and yeah. worse performing plans. That's still true. And in the uh, by taking published U.S. News and World Report data on HEDIS process criteria for the entire population, not just Medicare, we linked significantly. Uh, the best performing plans and HEDIS process criteria were significantly better on their risk-adjusted physical and (coughs) mental uh, outcomes. So my question for you is, um, uh, are you considering that kind, and we've had two questions now about looking at quality and looking at outcomes. I recall the Secretary of Health in around 90s, right around there, uh, in a televised interview on national television promising that that information was going to be made available to the public within a year. And it didn't happen. And personally, uh, we got a to, we had presented our results at Academy Health. They were peer-reviewed. And we were asked not to publish the paper. So um, I think there's a very important message. And the fact that the, the better-performing plans, let's look at this positively. The better-performing uh, plans in a given cohort were significantly more likely to be above average in the second. So there was some stationarity. In this, and it seems to me that I don't understand why this, um, the outcomes that are most important to patients, which I think were measured and analyzed validly, were have not yet been reported to the public. So my question to you really is: Are you considering that to embellish the other, you know, very interesting information that you have?
2: (coughs) I I can't really answer (coughs) the question, but I'll I'll take two steps at it. First of all, (coughs) there certainly is. Heterogeneity among Medicare Advantage plans. There's also heterogeneity among traditional Medicare providers. So, I mean, it's just – there's variation all over the place in this world. The second thing to say is, um, as Susan brought up, there is now the Medicare STAR program in Medicare Advantage, and uh, the plans – Uh, Are rewarded for the set of quality measures that are part of that, which some, and there is a little bit of weight on outcomes. Um, And those star ratings are certainly public. Uh, And moreover, I would say it's true, it's fair to say that if you don't have at least four out of five stars, you're in a very poor competitive position because of the reimbursement that's tied to the star ratings. You probably can't compete with the 4-star and 5-star plans. So, the there is public information, you wouldn't it, it's again, it's not perfect, nothing is in this world, but uh, it is public and it even see it'll as I said it seeps through indirectly because the lower-rated plans are going to f- find themselves without members pretty quickly and probably be out of the market. So, well let me thank you for uh, this, uh, nice to see you.
0: This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.